This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. William Happer, again, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Look forward to our chat. How's the information war treating you? You know, we're at a huge disadvantage because the uh, mainstream media has bought into every uh, uh, <laughs> every narrative of the elite and uh, from climate to COVID to, you know, goods and snows what, you know, whether it's right or not, they salute and they propagate the message. I think that you're one of the most prolific um, scientists in the world. I wanted to say climate scientist, but I know that that's not quite correct. No, I, I actually was trained as a nuclear physicist. I did a lot of work with uh, lasers later on. I probably best known for inventing the uh, sodium guide star, which is used at most modern ground-based telescopes to compensate for atmospheric turbulence. So uh, I did get into atmospheric physics in a, you know, sort of a back, backwards way uh, from uh, light scattering and light propagation, uh, lasers in particular. It's not all that complex. I mean, uh, when nuclear physics was discovered, it didn't take long to realize that it was very similar to atomic physics or molecular physics. You know, there's a nice unity in physics. That's why many people like it so much, as I do, that, you know, what works for a nucleus also works for a molecule or, or an atom or for a uh, musical instrument. You know, there are uh, resonances, uh, there are modes, uh, and uh, you describe them with the same differential equations in all cases. The, uh, the important thing, though, is that whatever uh, your description is, whatever your theory is, it has to agree with observation. And so uh, in nuclear physics, uh, wonderful instruments were developed. Uh, they've gone on into high energy physics, but nothing is taken on faith. You know, things are tested and they're retested and your object there is to destroy theories. You know, that's where <laughs> you get fame and fortune is by uh, showing some theory is wrong. And that's why it's so uh, puzzling to look at something like climate uh, where your job is supposedly to defend some crazy theory, you know, that clearly doesn't agree with observation, but uh, you defend it to the death. <laughs> so it's, it's not that way in other branches of science at all, certainly not in physics. Uh, what is your, your background? Um, I mean, the journey from essentially birth, for those who don't know, you were born in India. Well, yes, my... Uh, both of my parents were medical doctors. My father was a British army doctor in India. He went out in the 1920s. His first postings was the Afghan frontier, which was about as wild then as it is today. And my mother was a uh, medical missionary from North Carolina, of an American. My father was Scottish. 
and they met there. They had rival hospitals in the same town, and they decided it was better to cooperate than to compete. And and so I was one of the results, you know, <laughs> their their first child. And I was born just before World War II. And when the war broke out, it was clear my father would have to go to war. He was in the British Army. And uh, he was worried that uh, while he was away, India would be overrun by the Japanese. The Japanese had already taken over Singapore and much of Burma. And uh, his unit was scheduled to be sent to Burma to uh, try and stop the Japanese. They were Indian mountain troops, so they were used to that kind of warfare. And he decided to send me and my mother home. My mother was pregnant with my younger brother uh, at the time. And uh, we took a ship from Bombay and our first port of call was South Africa. We stopped at Cape Town for, <laughs> you know, refueling and uh, then went on to South America and up the coast of South America. The whole effort was to avoid submarines, German submarines, which were sinking every British ship they could catch. And fortunately, uh, we made it safely. Not, not all the ships did. And uh, so we uh, showed up in America. I was about two years old and uh, my mother didn't have a job. My father was at war. We thought he was in, in India. It turned out he was in North Africa, you know, facing Rommel. There were some changes in plans and deployment. And um, so my mother got a job at Oak Ridge, you know, in the Manhattan Project. And so as a uh, preschooler, I was in this secret city and surrounded by chemists and physicists and glass blowers and, uh, you know, all sorts of interesting people, you know, that you don't run into them every day. They were all assembled there to work on the bomb. And so I thought it was really an interesting way to make a living. And I uh, decided if I could, I would try and uh, get into the same line of work when I grew up. <laughs> and I did. So that's how I came to become a physicist. Uh, my, uh, I had an uncle at Oak Ridge who was also a physicist, and he was a, a role model for me. And uh, he advised me to come to Princeton uh, to do graduate work, which I did. And then spent many years later in Columbia, New York City, and finally came back. And so I'm back where I started at Princeton. <laughs> so that's my life history. <laughs> you got into um, doing a lot of work for, for the U.S. government. Well, that's right. I, uh, partly as a result of the um, inventing the Zodium Guide Star, which was invented in, in the early days of the uh, strategic defense initiative, Star Wars, it, because, you know, you, if you're trying to shoot down a uh, incoming missile with a high power laser, you have the same problem astronomers do that the atmospheric turbulence uh, breaks the laser beam up into speckles uh, uh, before it hits the uh, target. And so no single speckle has enough power to cause much damage. So if you could undo the effects of atmospheric turbulence, you could put all the power on the uh, incoming missile and, and uh, destroy it. And so it was known that you could pre-distort the beam. You could use what was called a rubber mirror to uh, 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 put the beam out in such a way that the atmosphere, instead of degrading it, made it perfect. It started out imperfect and became perfect 
when it hit the target. But you had to be able to measure the atmospheric properties. And at the time, astronomers had already realized this, and they knew they could use bright stars to uh, sense atmospheric turbulence and uh, correct for it and look at nearby dim stars. But it, nobody knew how to uh, do this if you didn't have a bright star. And so I happened to know that there was a layer of sodium atoms, and you could make an artificial star, a yellow star, in any direction you like in the sky. And and so that was my invention. I suggested doing this. And uh, at first, people couldn't believe that it, it was possible or that it would work. But I put in the numbers. It looked like it would work fine. And it did. And so I got some notoriety. This was all top secret at the time. But I was invited to come to Washington uh, during the first Bush administration and um, had uh, basic research at Department of Energy because that's what I did was basic research. And so I, I spent a couple of years there uh, working in Washington. And when uh, Gore came in, he uh, one of the first people he fired was me. And so I was, a favorite. <laughs> I was able, to, able to come back to my wife and family back in uh, Princeton. I was glad to get on my laboratory. And uh, so it was a favor. I've been grateful to Mr. Gore for doing that for me. I might have turned into a bureaucrat if he hadn't. <laughs> And then uh, I spent a number of years, uh, again, back at Princeton doing research of various types. And uh, they invited me to come back during the Trump uh, presidency to the National Security Council. They wanted someone there with a technical background, scientific engineering background. And so I, I said, "I OK, I'll come if you'll let me try and promote some sensible policies on climate. You know, things were pretty crazy about climate then. And of course, they continued to get crazier and crazier. <laughs> but uh, they agreed. And so I, I spent a year trying to get something done on climate and doing the other things they asked me to do, you know, technical things. It was pretty clear after a year they weren't going to do anything. So I, I said, well, I got a one year lease and I uh, I told you, if you decide to do something on climate, I'll stay a little longer, but you, you're not going to do it, so I'm going home. <laughs> so I went home. I'm glad to be home. And uh, as it turns out, you know, there was no chance for them to do anything in the mm. second term, which is what they were planning to do, or at least that's what they said they were planning to do. You should never take any politician at their word. You know, that's one of the first things you should. Yeah, you learn about politics is that uh, most of us uh, think it's kind of honorable to keep your word, but uh, that's not true. <laughs> what what was it about? What was it about the Trump administration um, that was resisting you? Because from from where I'm sitting, uh, Trump was making all the right noises regarding climate and all the alarmism around it. Yeah. Well, Mr. Trump had a hard time because, you know, he was a big surprise to the establishment that he won. And so from day one of his administration, uh, the establishment, the uh, all over America, but especially in Washington, the deep state, you know, the permanent bureaucracy was uh, trying to thwart him. 
And so uh, no matter what he tried to do, even if it would have been good for the country, and for example, the modest thing that I had asked was trying to get him to do, and he would have liked to do it, you know, we talked about it, and he was in favor was to uh, have a serious scientific review of what we know about climate. Is it really an emergency? Uh, how well can we predict the future uh, of climate? And that's never been done. You know, it's been a closed shop and we never do that with anything else. For example, if we buy a new fighter plane, uh, there's a rigorous red team review where critics of the new plane come in and they point out what's wrong with it, anything they can think of, and the defenders have to defend it. And often they defend it successfully, but sometimes the critics discover, you know, fatal flaws. And uh, that's a very good thing for the American taxpayer because it <laughs> avoids wasting a lot of money. Uh, you know, the committees cost something too, but it's peanuts compared to the waste that would occur if you built something that didn't work. So I think, I mean, you can see, for example, in uh, U.S. weapons in Ukraine, they, they work very well. And that's because many of them have been through these rigorous reviews and uh, that weeds out junk uh, equipment that you really shouldn't build. But we've never done that for climate. So uh, instead, <laughs> you know, we've got these junk theories uh, that don't agree with observation. And yet politicians are making policy based on this. Uh, you know, it's easy to understand because it gives them lots of control. That's what politicians like, you know, they, they uh, like control over everybody else. And uh, so climate is uh, a great tool for that. <laughs> you know, climate is sort of the average weather for a number of years. And climate has always changed, you know, from the beginning of recorded history, you know, you read the Babylonian clay tablets and they talk about changing climate. You read about, you know, Joseph and his brothers going to Egypt because of prolonged drought in Canaan. And uh, that's the way the world is. Uh, it's because uh, we live in this complicated uh, uh, earth with uh, atmosphere, ocean, they're fluids, they're full of turbulence. Um, there's this rotating, which uh, affects the way the fluids uh, move. So uh, it's no wonder the climate is a very complicated thing. It's no wonder it's changing all the time. For example, this year, um, to everyone's surprise, uh, We've had no hurricanes in the month of August in the eastern United States. That's very unusual. <laughs> there are not many months of August like that. It was not predicted. And uh, I, it, no shame to the predictors because it's very, very difficult. But it just shows that uh, even a few months ahead, you know, this year's hurricane season, people got it wrong. <laughs> And now the climate people say, well, forget about that. We're going to tell you exactly what's going to happen in 100 years or 50 years. And uh, it's nonsense. They, they can't do that. And if you... none of them have worked, you know, they've been badly off on temperature predictions, on sea ice prediction, you know, uh, 
just anything you can think of, uh, the predictions have been worthless. Mm. <laughs> and yet we continue to pay attention to this and make policy on the on these uh, worthless predictions. The claim is that, yes, the climate has always been changing, but only in the last perhaps 200 years, the changes have been more rapid and more severe. Well, that's certainly not true. I mean, we've got quite good records of uh, climate change in the recent past. For example, the Little Ice Age uh, in Europe, things cooled down very quickly much, and uh, more, uh, more than they've warmed up recently. The warming when the uh, north settled Greenland was also very rapid, you know, and uh, uh, and there have been previous warmings uh, before. You know, the the warming the last century was about a, a degree per century. The the warming when the north settled Greenland was also about a degree, maybe a little bit more. And uh, so there's absolutely nothing unusual about the uh, warming rate that we've had and. My own guess is it has a little contribution from CO2, not very much, and other greenhouse gases, but most of it's natural. It's mostly a recovery from the little ice age, which ended around 1800. Uh, you can see that clearly because, for example, in uh, Alaska, the glaciers started melting about 1800. It was long before there was any uh, large increase of CO2. And most of the Alaska glaciers were uh, half gone or more than half gone by uh, 1870. Again, long before there was any big increase in uh, CO2. It was so dramatic that John Muir made a special trip. The, John Muir, the great environmentalist, uh, naturalist, he went to Alaska to investigate uh, Glacier Bay and found that all the ice was gone that was there 60 years ago, 70 years ago, and it all melted in 1870. <laughs> and it, it clearly had nothing to do with people driving SUVs. Nobody had invented the automobile then. <laughs> and uh, there wasn't very much CO2 from, you know, steamships and, uh, and uh, locomotives. And also, you know, we just getting started. Well, the climate, you know, it, it's a very independent thing. It, it really doesn't care much about human beings. It's going to do what it's going to do. And mm. uh, we stop it we should be able to adapt to it you know if, if there's anything that humans are good at it's adaptation you know the yes. reason our race has been successful is that we've adapted to you know drying out of the east african plains that's probably what led to the development of the human race and uh it was an animal that was good at, at coping with new situations and uh you, to hear people talk today, you would think we've completely lost that ability. I, I don't think that's true. I think, you know, there's still lots of adaptable human around, and uh, I think we'll do just fine. Before CO2 was the devil, I remember when I was a kid, the ozone layer was the big thing, and uh, we had to get a new refrigerator uh, for, for that reason. I know that you have a little bit of a history with that in the Clinton administration. Well, that's right. Uh, the Montreal Protocol to ban Freon was signed during the uh, uh, Bush, the first Bush administration. 
And since I was in charge of basic research, I was interested in, you know, what were the scientific facts about Freon. And uh, I was supporting a lot of the work, actually. My office, we spent about $3.5 billion a year, and when a billion dollars was a lot back then, and uh, including work on, on uh, ozone and the atmosphere. So I had people come in and, and tell me about what they were measuring. Uh, and give me little seminars, and I, I couldn't see any reason to uh, uh, do anything drastic until we had learned more. You know, for example, the the big issue with ozone was uh, ultraviolet light at ground level, and uh, we had lots of instruments measuring ultraviolet light, UVB, you know, the type that uh, is blocked by ozone. And there was no sign of it increasing. In fact, in most places in the world, it was decreasing. It was going the opposite direction of the theory. Uh, but it was sort of a, a dry run for uh, the climate alarmism. It was the ozone alarmism. And so the press jumped aboard and there were all sorts of false stories about, uh, you know, ozone holes over Kennebunkport, you know, which uh, was running up to Bush's re-election campaign. And so they were stampeded into signing the Montreal Protocol. Uh, I, I don't think it did too much damage. As you said, you had to get a new refrigerator. The new refrigerants were not as good as the original Freons, which were really good refrigerants. Uh, but they worked and uh, it let DuPont make some more money, you know, because the old refrigerants were, <laughs> were all patent. And so you could make them in South Africa or China and you didn't have to pay a royalty to DuPont. And all of a sudden you had to pay royalties to DuPont again. So there was a fair amount of, uh, I hesitate to call it corruption, but you know, it was corruption essentially, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, better the fortunes of uh, chemical manufacturers. Uh, but, but it didn't matter. It, it was not exceedingly expensive. And uh, that's not the case with CO2. What we're mm -hmm. doing now with CO2 is suicidal. You know, it will destroy society. You cannot run the modern world without fossil fuels. And uh, we're only just beginning to see the disastrous results of that, you know, it's been accelerated by the Ukrainian war, but it, it would have happened anyway. And um, I think most people don't realize what's coming for them. You know, it's, uh, it's not good for humanity. What are your views on batteries and electric cars and those sorts of things? I think the term well, is renewable. Well, electric cars have been around for a long time, Henry Ford had to compete against electric cars back in 1900. Little old ladies had electric cars in their garages in, and they, you know, they buzzed off to church every Sunday in their electric car. <laughs> and, um, they had the same problems as now, you know, they took a long time to charge, you know, they had limited range. It was okay to go to church and back, but it wasn't much good, you know, going a few towns over to visit your grandchildren. And so eventually electric cars were uh, forced out of the market. And uh, today we have uh, 
you know, somewhat better batteries, you know, lithium batteries don't weigh as much and uh, people are, are willing to, to uh, uh, pay the high prices that go with electric cars. You know, they're toys for the rich, you know, they, and they're subsidized toys. So the rich buy a Tesla and the government subsidizes it, you know, the federal government, the state government in America, and maybe they do the same in South Africa, I don't know. But, you know, the average person can't afford one. It's not practical and uh, it's much too expensive. And uh, so I don't, I, I don't have anything against electric cars, but they shouldn't be subsidized. They shouldn't be government policy. They should be <laughs> used if, if it makes uh, practical sense, which for most people it doesn't. This, this idea of sustainable slash renewable energy um, it seems very forced and artificial. It, is there an overall net benefit to going in that direction? Well, uh, look, uh, there is a net benefit to being uh, efficient with, uh, you know, burning fossil fuels. Uh, there's a lot of fossil fuels around it. We're not going to run out of them for a, a long time. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you can run a coal plant, you know, to make electricity with half the coal, you save a lot of money because you don't have to buy the coal. You, could, you get the same electricity for half the amount of coal. So you can improve the efficiency of coal plants. You know, modern coal plants are quite a bit more efficient than they were 50 years ago. Uh, that's because of the development of new alloys that you can run it very high temperatures and high pressures and they're safe and they work. And so you can make ultra high, what do they call ultra super critical coal plants. And South Africa has some, we have a one or two in America too. Chinese will make them for you. The Japanese will make them for you. And that's good. It saves money, saves fuel. But the, you know, to, the idea that, uh, you know, you, you should, stop using coal or stop using oil because uh, they're damaging the planet. That's certainly not true. You know, the, uh, the, the issue of CO2, which is the main issue, uh, there are real pollutants, I'll come back to that in a minute, but CO2 is actually helping the world. The world is getting greener. You can see that from satellite observations. You can see that from agricultural yields, from forestry yields. And, uh, that's because of more CO2. We, we've been in a uh, CO2 famine from the point of view of plants and geological history for several million years now. And so we're beginning to come out of it thanks to burning fossil fuels. So we should be grateful for that. Certainly <laughs> the plants are. They, they uh, get down on their knees and thank the uh, fossil fuel industry every day <laughs> for all the more, all the excess CO2. It's not really excess, it's recovering from a drought of CO2. Uh, coming back to sustainability, uh, look, we're all environmentalists. We want to live in a clean, comfortable uh, planet, uh, you know, fresh air, fresh water, uh, but the, what the sustainability, uh, fad is doing is just the opposite. You look, uh, I look around my home here at Princeton and what used to be beautiful green fields are covered with, uh, black solar panels with weeds growing between them, you know, 
and I know perfectly well they're not doing any good. They don't work at night. They don't work when there's clouds, you know, so it's all virtue signaling. And uh, the governments have set it up that many people make a lot of money from this, you know, you get subsidies from it, the utilities are forced to pay you, the utilities get to raise their rates to the customers. So everybody is doing great, except for the average person whose bills are going up. So they have to pay more to the utility. They have to pay more to the government for the taxes. They have to pay more for everything. So there's less and less for the common man and more and more for the government, more and more for the utility and more and more for the, you know, windmill makers and solar panel makers. So it's, it's profoundly corrupt. It's the, it's the inverse Robin Hood strategy, rob from the poor to give to the rich. You were going to mention uh, the pollutants from the fossil yeah, fuel industry. Let's talk about that for a minute. You know, if you burn coal or, or any internal combustion engine, you can't avoid making real pollutants, for example, oxides of nitrogen. When you get hot air and get it hot enough, the oxygen and nitrogen, some of them recombine and they come out with uh, nasty oxides, nitric acid, actually, and or oxides of sulfur or lots of fly ash, you know, and uh, so the air smells bad. It, it, uh, it gives you uh, asthma if you, got, <laughs> if you breathe it in. And so we shouldn't permit that. And uh, that's not permitted in modern uh, electrical power plants. So there are good pollution controls on all of these and almost nothing comes out the stack. So they're, they're perfectly safe today. They weren't perfectly safe a hundred years ago, but we've worked on that and we should be working on that. And uh, there's no problem with uh, uh, environmental degradation now with a properly designed uh, com fuel combustion plant. How does nuclear power fit into the equation? Well, nuclear uh, is a great way to make electricity, or it's also a great way to <clears throat> move a big battleship, you know. Uh, so it, um, it has certain uh, uses that everybody recognizes uh, uh, where you you don't mind having a big, heavy uh, electric generator of power, uh, like on a, a site uh, for generating electricity or on a sufficiently large ship. Uh, it's uh, very reliable. You put a nuclear plant, uh, you get it started and you give it a fuel load and it'll run on the same fuel load for 18 months, 24 months. Uh, you don't need to add any additional fuel during that entire time and it runs 24 hours a day, uh, you know, seven days a week. It doesn't matter whether the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, it will still put out power. And uh, so it, it is a very good uh, technology. The French, for example, have led the way in nuclear power. And uh, there was a time in France where something like 80% of the power, I don't know the exact figure, but a very high percentage uh, of the electrical power came from nuclear and it worked just fine. It, the French uh, were lucky to have it. 
uh, whether they can keep that going in, in the face of all of the environmental fanaticism, I don't know. The Germans, for example, have closed down all their nuclear plants. Uh, I think many of them are realizing it was a bad mistake, but they've done that. The uh, Japanese uh, have been a little bit more sensible. But the Ch you know Chinese, for example, are building nuclear power plants. Uh, <laughs> Every month there's a new power plant coming online and uh, it's a good thing. It, as I said, it produces reliable power, affordable power. The wraps on nuclear are that you have radioactive waste that stays uh, radioactive and dangerous for a very long time, you know, certainly many human lifetimes. Uh, and it's true, we, we're not quite sure what to do with that, but again, there's no urgency you can store radioactive uh, cores on site uh, for hundreds of years you know they they don't they're not very big you put them in dry cast storage after you let them cool off for a you know five or ten years underwater and uh, once they're in the dry cast they uh, are safe you know and um, it's sort of like being a mummy in a pyramid you know pyramids are <laughs> four thousand years old uh, Mummies are still fine in the pyramid <laughs> if you haven't already dug them out. <laughs> when, you know, human society is used to handling things for centuries or even millennia, and they last fine. The The Roman Colosseum was built, you know, 2,000 years ago. It's in pretty good shape still. <laughs> so we can certainly handle things for long, long periods of time. And, you know, a 2,000-year-old reactor core would be a valuable uh, you know, resource in a 2000 years because the hot stuff is gone and it's full of uh, visionable materials that you could use again if you wanted to. So anyway, I, I don't see any real emergency. The only real issue with nuclear, and uh, I do take it seriously, is uh, nuclear weapons. Mm. You know, uh, civilian power and uh, nuclear weapons, they, they share a lot of the same technology. And given the stupidity of uh, the human race, uh, you would like to <laughs> limit the access to nuclear weapons. You know, so you know, look, look what they've done with climate. Now, just imagine what they do if they had lots mm. of nuclear weapons. You know, you know, the mind boggles. And yeah. so, uh, this is not something to be brushed away. Yeah. It's just the stupidity of mankind. It's amazing that there's a nice clip out. You may. We have seen it about uh, the great German theologian Dietrich Bernhoeffer. He was one of the first, one of the few uh, theologians to stand up against the Nazis. And uh, for that, he was eventually hanged by them just before uh, the end of the war. But one of his uh, conclusions was that the stupidity of mankind is a bigger threat than evil, you know, that they're are so many stupid people out there and they do such, so many dumb things and they, it's very hard to com combat you know an evil person you can take up arms and you, you can fight them what are you going to do with the huge number of, of stupid people out there who do stupid things and we all know that i mean every one of us uh, from time to time in our own lives we're stupid and uh, multiply that by eight billion people you know <laughs> you know very uh very sobering uh how how much do we know william about uh radiation you were you were talking 
about it earlier being um you know a, a bad a bad byproduct of of nuclear energy but i've been reading stories lately about for example chernobyl and there's flourishing plant life flourishing animal life there are even families that live there um i certainly will not be that person to go and walk around and test it but what do you know about radiation actually well uh we're all subject to radiation. That's actually something I know a lot about because I did my thesis on <laughs> radioactive isotopes and I, I soaked up a lot of radiation during that time, but I'm still here at 83 and uh, with no, no apparent damage. Um, radiation uh, comes from the disintegration of atomic nuclei. And uh, there are three main types there when a a nucleus uh, uh, can emit gamma rays. It's a little bit like uh, light, but it's very much shorter wavelengths. And uh, nuclei also typically have too many neutrons in them. So many of them uh, emit electrons as the neutrons uh, decay uh, into protons. And so that's beta decay. And uh, finally, very heavy nuclei emit alpha particles. So there are these three types of radiation. And uh, the one that uh, we encounter most ourselves is from our own body. We're full of potassium. If you don't have enough potassium, you die, you know, because of salt imbalances. But potassium is quite radioactive. And so when I used to do level level counting as a student, I would never come close to my counters or let any other person come close because, you know, their own radiation was enough to ruin my <laughs> ruin my experiment. And uh, so we're adapted to radiation. Uh, we're radioactive ourselves, and uh, its effects on on us are uh, coped with because we're full of repair enzymes. Where you know our DNA is always being damaged by this or that. Mostly it's not radiation. Mostly it's the oxygen that we breathe and we live with. You know, there are all sorts of oxidative damage to DNA. Uh, and so that you're full of various repair enzymes that go hunting through your cells, looking for damaged DNA and fixing it. And if you're lucky and most of your repair enzymes are working, uh, you know, you can have a lot of damage. It won't make any difference because the damage is repaired. But it's it's sort of the luck of the draw, you know, if you happen to be born with uh, a lot of defective enzymes and you are susceptible to uh, DNA damage, you can get cancer and various things because the repairs are not being done or they're not being done properly. And that's why you see this huge difference between so longevity of people, it, it's uh, so, it's the good luck or the bad luck of what genes that you're born with. And uh, some of us are lucky and some are not. Uh, but the, the um, uh, dangers of radiation have been enormously exaggerated. Uh, the, the big issue is really the linear, no threshold uh, dose hypothesis. And the, the idea there is that any small amount of radiation causes damage and, and kills people. And so it's like, 
I, I, it's, it's a little hard to say, but you know, uh, you know, if you drop a cannonball on, on someone's head, it, it will likely kill them. But if you drop a, uh, you know, a pebble, uh, it'll just bounce off and do no damage. But the linear no-dose theory says if you take the number of pellets that uh, pebbles that weigh uh, the same as a cannonball, you know, say 20 kilograms, really heavy, and uh, you drop them on enough people, then one person will die because it's the same weight, you know. And uh, of course, no person will die because <laughs> there's a threshold where nothing happens. And uh, it used to be that was very well known that, you know, many things are poisonous in large amounts, but they're actually beneficial in small amounts. So there's even some evidence that radiation may be like that, that small amounts of radiation may may help you. You know, if you look at the data on low dose radiation, it's not at all clear that it's harmful. It may actually be helpful. I'm not an expert on this, but I know enough to uh, be interested in it. Hmm. So I, I, I think I think radiation is, is not a serious issue. It's something you can cope with. Uh, you know, there are parts of India, for example, where I was a kid, where radiation levels are 10 times anywhere else. Kerala, for example, southwest coast. And the people there are just fine. They're very bright and uh, very healthy. And uh, there's no evidence that radiation has ever hurt them or will in the future. So... Uh, <laughs> would you, would you uh, go for a drive through Chernobyl? Would I? Uh, I'm sorry. Would, say, would you? Would you go for a drive through Chernobyl? Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I don't no problem. <laughs> yeah. So, so that would be low dose radiation. At that it would be low dose. Low dose. <clears throat> high dose radiation will kill you, <clears throat> mm. just like high dose of any almost anything else. You know, sure. It's the dose that makes the poison, as uh, Paracelsus said a long time ago. Is it? true that consensus is not science yes of course consensus is not science uh, <clears throat> one of the uh good examples of that was um the resistance of many german scientists to uh einstein's theory of relativity and uh some enterprising german in the early 30s put together a whole book with a hundred authors german authors who had articles one after another, you know, bad-mouthing relativity. And the title of the book was A Hundred Authors Against Einstein, Hundert Autoren gegen Einstein. And uh, <clears throat> when this was brought to Einstein's attention, he says, I don't know why they bothered with a hundred, you know, if they had one author who was correct, then that would have been enough. <laughs> 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 So uh, that's true, you know, all you need is one correct argument and, and that that's it, you know, that's the death of a theory. <laughs> um, so, so when they talk about 97% consensus, what do they mean? I don't know what they actually mean, you know, they, uh, <clears throat> there were surveys where people, uh, you know, asked, you know, do you believe the earth is warmed? And, uh, in the last century. And if they asked me, I, I'd say, well, sure, you know, I've looked at glaciers in Alaska that I can see they're retreating. It's clearly been a little bit of warming, not very much. 
or they ask, uh, <clears throat> do you think uh, CO2 is a greenhouse gas? And um, I say, of course, you know, nobody knows that better than I do. That's my field. <laughs> or, you know, so they ask these silly questions for which the answers are all yes. And then they say, you see, everybody agrees, you know, that there's a greenhouse gas catastrophe, which is not at all what any of that implies. Uh, another thing is that scientists, um, <clears throat> like everybody else, you know, they don't know very much beyond their own special field. But they tend to think because they've got a uh, PhD, they're smarter than everyone else. And so they can give an opinion on anything, you know, things that they don't know anything about. <laughs> and they should be listened to more than, you know, the barber around the corner or the guy who, you know, delivers your groceries. <laughs> who know just as much as they do about this. <laughs> mm. And so, so uh, scientists in particular, academics tend to have a, a inflated view of, of what their opinion is worth and uh, are glad to give it on any occasion. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like you're saying that um, staying in your lane is not a very good um, scientific approach. Well, I don't. I wouldn't say that exactly. I mean, I think if you're a, a really cre creative scientist, and there are not many of them, but most of them are uh, striking in that they don't stay in their lane. You know, they're always trying to learn something new, or they discover something in their lane that they thought they understood. They didn't really understand it as well as they thought, and uh, there's new ways to understand it that are very fruitful and productive. Uh, but I, I think uh, I, I would rephrase that by saying that you, you shouldn't uh, pontificate about things that you really don't know anything about. <laughs> but it's okay to try to learn about new things, you know, by all means, try to get outside of your lane. <laughs> That's good for you. Yeah. It's a good, it'd be nice if some of the clients, climate scientists would do that, but uh, they don't. <laughs> yeah. How damaged is climate science? Well, I, you know, I did not begin my career as a climate scientist, but people who did or who began their careers in, say, meteorology or atmospheric physics, in many cases, are very bitter about what's happened to their field, you know, which at one time was uh, an exciting, uh, challenging field with lots of problems. It's been politicized. It's uh, full of... Uh, people are looking over their shoulder, you know, is, is this the politically correct answer instead of what is the scientifically correct answer to this problem? And, you know, it's a fascinating field. You know, I just mentioned the fact that we counter to all predictions, we've had no hurricanes in August. You know, that's interesting. You know, how, how do you do better next year, you know, and get a better prediction? Or, uh, and if you weren't so tied up in knots about, you know, the uh, climate emergency and, and the end of the world, you know, maybe we'd get some of these things right that are just hanging out there, you know, waiting to be solved. And I think they will be solved, but it's, my guess is that that's been set back by 30, 40 years by all of the uh, hysteria over, you know, the climate emergency, which doesn't exist. 
And so the real problems, good problems are not being worked on. Money's being wasted. Yeah, young people are being corrupted. You know, it, it's just a tr tremendous shame. What are the good problems? Well, every field of science uh, has good problems, you know. Uh, you know, Newton himself, you know, who <clears throat> made these monumental advances said that he felt that he was like a small child, you know, standing on the shore of a vast ocean and he had only picked up a few pebbles and understood how they worked. And here was this vast ocean of the world out there still waiting to be understood. And uh, it's the same today as it was in Newton's time. So there's plenty of good things to work on uh, if, you're a if you're a serious scientist and you would like to do something creative, you can do that. But, you know, <clears throat> making models uh, that predict what politicians want you to predict, you know, you know, fudging data to make it look like <clears throat> the models that don't work, they don't agree with observations, so change the observations. All of that is not science at all. That's really uh, disgraceful and, and shouldn't be going on. But it is going on. How much do humans influence the climate? Well, that's a, that's a good question. That's a good scientific question. And um, <clears throat> there are some clear answers. For example, in, in any big city or urban area, you get an urban heat island effect. And that's not so much because of greenhouse gases, but it's because of buildings, it's because of black topping roads, changing the amount of rainfall that evaporates as opposed to running off and things like that. And it's a big effect. It might be three, four, five degree warming in an urban area. And that's been one of the big problems in trying to figure out uh, what has the temperature of the earth done because uh, temperature sensors tend to be located near towns and urban areas and towns all over the world are growing because human population is growing. Towns in particular are growing. People are leaving the countryside and coming to the cities. And so our measurement instruments are being uh, corrupted by this uh, natural growth of uh, humanity around them and, and structured. Uh, with respect to Greenhouse gases, uh, the most important greenhouse gas of all is water vapor. There's not much we can do about water vapor. If you add clouds to that, water vapor plus clouds is almost all of the greenhouse effect of Earth. Second in importance is carbon dioxide. I think if you look at both clouds and water vapor, carbon dioxide might be five or 10% of the greenhouse effect. So it's not completely trivial, but it's uh, definitely small compared to water vapor and clouds. Carbon dioxide is definitely going up. You know, we've got good measurements of carbon dioxide since uh, Charles Keeling uh, put together the first dedicated observatory in, in Hawaii. It's come up from around 300 to over 400 today. It's a 30% increase. It's been good. You know, it's been uh, very beneficial to agriculture. You know, uh, 
operators of greenhouses uh, typically add CO2 to the greenhouse, uh, yet they have to pay for it, it's not cheap, but they wouldn't do it if it didn't improve uh, the quality of the fruits and vegetables enough to cover the cost of adding the CO2. And here we're doing this to the open air, to the open biosphere, and uh, they don't have to pay for it at all. You get it for free because of the burning of fossil fuels, and it's definitely good for the biosphere. Uh, but it, it may be causing a small amount of warming. I, uh, my own guess is uh, doubling CO2 is probably going to cause a warming of, of less than one degree centigrade. It's hard to say how much, but uh, of that order, it might be quite a bit less. Uh, but it's very complicated to try and get it right because of the interference of the water vapor and clouds that I mentioned before. So nobody quite knows how that interacts with small changes of CO2, but, but it's very hard to see the effects of CO2. If you double CO2 concentrations, that diminishes the cooling radiation that escapes to space by only 1%, a very tiny amount. So 100% increase of CO2 is a 1% change in cooling radiation. So it's, it's not a very effective way to try and warm the earth. You know, if I wanted to warm the earth, you know, doubling CO2 is not the way I would try to do it. But <laughs> it's just not very effective. But it, it, it's also critical for life. This is why they pump CO2 into greenhouses. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very important for life. I mean, talk about carbon footprint. We're made of carbon, <laughs> you know. We, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> We're a carbon-based life, you know, and uh, thank God for carbon. And uh, each of us breathes out about two pounds of CO2 a day because that's what we live on. We're, we're made of CO2. We eat CO2. We're, we're made of carbon. You know, we eat carbon-based food, you know. <laughs> and uh, to have it demonized now, when they talk about carbon pollution, carbon footprint, I, I just scratch my head and I, once again i think back to dietrich bonhoeffer you know and uh, human stupidity you know <laughs> how is it possible that you can you can uh, deceive so many people and they're you know they're good people they're they uh they're not mean people they're just stupid people you know but st stupid can uh, often cause lots and lots of problems <laughs> <laughs> in the information war, where do you position yourself? Well, I, uh, I uh, position myself as uh, each of us has this wonderful gift of, of life that we've been given when we were born and we would like to do something meaningful uh, for it. And, uh, so the life we live has, has not been lived in vain. There, there's something to show for it. And there are many ways you can do that. You, you know, if you're a good uh, communicator uh, like yourself, you know, you can put out good podcasts that are, are meaningful. Or, but you don't have to do that. You, you can try and do good science or you can, for example, you can be a very good barber. You know, if you give people good haircuts all your life, <laughs> you know, that a life well lived you know i i'm uh, i admire anyone who does a job well and so i i would say that uh where i stand on 
the human condition is we should make it possible for every human being and help every human being to be as uh, to, to make the best they possibly can of their own lives, you know, and and, and that will help everybody else. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, it sounds kind of Pollyanna-ish, uh, but uh, I, I, that's what I believe. Yeah, you can, if you're really serious about reaching me, you can send me an email. At, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Princeton, you can look up my email address on the university website. <laughs> Or you can look at the uh, website of the CO2 Coalition. Uh, it has a, some of my work there. You know, CO2Coalition.org. Um, and you could, if, you, if you Google on me, you'll see lots of hate, you know, uh, mail yes. about me. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, environmental stream, extremists hate me, and <laughs> which... Uh, it's okay, you know. They. <laughs> it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Well, thank you very much for your kindness. Uh, keep up your good work. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.